Well, good morning. Thank you guys for being here today. I know there's a lot of stuff you can do on a Sunday, so I'm glad you chose to spend your time with us, especially during this season of life. I mean, this is the greatest time to be alive because we got football going on, we got baseball going on, we got basketball going on, we got hockey going on. Anybody, anybody even watch hockey? In the, like, well, okay, all right. So we got a couple. I, I knew there were some Michigan folks here, so that's that's all right. But uh, thank you guys for coming to church. Thank you uh, for blessing Laura and I. Uh, I. I say this all the time, though. We could not do church without you all, okay? So I'm, I'm thankful for each one. Y'all can do church without me, but I do feel like God has uh, gifted me with the best team in the world to, uh, to do church with. So thank you for each and every one of you guys. We, we do appreciate that. But uh, we're in the fifth Sunday of the month, which means it's Family Sunday, which is awesome. Every fifth Sunday, we like to bring the kids into the, the service with all of us because uh, at some point, they're going to grow older and come into service, and they need to see what the adults are doing. And, and so we've thought through the implications of that so everybody can relax. This is not our first time doing this, all right? And so we've given them snacks and uh, ways that they can participate in the service as well. And so uh, we're just thankful that they're all in here today. So that being said, we're going to close out this series today called You Asked For. Basically what we're doing is what kind of Jesus liked to do, which is answer the people's questions. And so we surveyed uh, all you all and we're trying to answer your most asked questions. And and, and the question today is perhaps a timely one because it's the question, uh, timely in, in the sense of what's going on in our country, it's, it's uh, the question of racism. Does God have anything to say about racism was the question. Uh, somebody asked, is it a sin? Somebody else asked a really interesting question, which was, was God racist when he chose the Jewish people to procure the line of Jesus since he chose uh, one particular group? Was God being racist in that? So all great questions. So first of all, I think it would be helpful for us to define our terms. What does racism even mean? Racist and racism gets thrown out a lot in the media today. So uh, here's what our boys at Merriam-Webster classify racism as. They say racism is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. In other words, racism is about power. It's about making a name for yourself by putting someone else down. It's making yourself feel better or look better. So right out of the gates, we can cross God off the racist list as far as choosing the Jewish people, uh, specifically when he chose Abraham, because he says, I'm not choosing you because you're superior. In fact, he says it's quite the opposite. I'm, I'm choosing you because of how inferior you are. You're the smallest group of people, the poorest, the weakest group that I've ever seen. Furthermore, he wasn't choosing them based on race. He was choosing them based on faith. God's response to the Jews was not based on their color of skin. It was based on this covenant to forgive their sin. God's response is based on rebellion, not race. So, is God racist? No, absolutely not. Now, is racism a sin? Well, let's take a look. If you brought a Bible, I hope you did, go ahead and grab it. You're going to want to open up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew is going to be towards the back of your Bible. It's the first book in the New Testament. 
And you want the big number seven. While you're getting there, I want to look at a couple of different things because I'm not under the impression that you all came in here and, and fully believe the Bible or anything like that. So I, I want to, I want to defend an argument on racism just from a scientific and, and intellectual standpoint before we see what God has to say on anything. So first of all, from a, from just a scientific inquiry standpoint, we can see that racism is wrong. From a purely gen- genetic perspective, we know that 99.9% of the same DNA structure runs within all human races. That 0.1% is what accounts for the pigment in your skin, or in my case, the lack thereof. Okay, I mean, my poor kids, the wintertime, they're borderline invisible. We can't, I mean, just sometimes you can't even see them. They can't get too close to the TV. They sunburn, but that's okay. So, so your height, your weight, your hair color, all those things, that's in that 0.1% difference. We are remarkably similar. That is to say, if a person from the Congo needed a a blood transplant, they they could use my blood as long as we were the same blood type or vice versa. So it's kind of an absurd argument to say that we're any better simply from a scientific standpoint. It's also absurd from a psychological approach. There was an interesting book written a while back uh, called Are We Born Racist? The author makes a very compelling argument. Short answer, no. Okay, so if if I ruined the book for you, I I apologize. Uh, You are not born racist. But uh, he showed that how neuroscience has proven that our brains, even at a very young age, as young as two and three, it notices differences in a whole host of things. Part of that is skin color. So at a young age, you, you can realize that your skin looks different than somebody else's skin. That's why when you're at the mall with your kids and, you know, they're saying, why is that person black? And you're like, oh, Lord, help us, right? I mean, they're just, because they notice the differences in skin, but that's not racist. Remember our definition. You have to think you're superior. So we notice differences, but we're not able to make judgments about the differences. Now, the author writes how all of us, regardless of color, are drawn to people who look like us and value what we value. He says it's really a safety instinct. We like to go where we feel secure. And if you can be honest with yourself, you know that's true for you. You think back to the first day of high school. You went to the people that that kind of looked like you. If you were into band, you went towards the band people. If you're into sports, you went towards the sports people. If you were a vampire, you went towards the goths. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just tried to find... That was a joke. Never mind. Don't worry about that. Uh, if you're goth, we love everybody here. Okay, so... I, but whatever you wanted to do, to do, that's where you wanted... You wanted to feel belonged. You wanted to feel known. So you went to people as a self-preservation tactic. Now, here's where science and I disagree because they argue that that's an evolutionary trait because as our ancestors roamed the earth, they needed to not get killed, so they stayed away from things that, that were out of place. And it's no different than a deer not coming towards you as a human being because you look and smell different. That's what science would say. I, I think it's quite the opposite. I think God created us in this way. But whatever the case may be, it's clear that our brains pick up on differences on things. 
and we notice things uh, that are clearly different. So here's what gets fascinating from a Christian worldview. Neuroscientists believe that we are actually born with a sort of sense of fairness, almost as if nature can tell you what's fair and unfair. It's crazy, I know, but I'm sure you've seen this play out. Just the other day, Laura brought home one of the greatest gifts she could ever bring, which is a pinwheel. Y'all had pinwheels before? Anybody know what a pinwheel is? It's a, it's a chocolate cookie that's got a marshmallow on top, and then it's covered in chocolate. It's fantastic. It's amazing. If you all not have pinwheels, it will change your life. But uh, they're, they're a fairly large cookie, and so we, I personally limit the kids to, to just getting one cookie. Okay, I mean, now I'm, I'm a grown man, okay? This is, this is my house, and I will eat however many pinwheels I want to eat. But if the kids catch me eating more than one pinwheel, what do they say? That's un- not fair. It's not fair, Dad. How can you get more pinwheels? Because I just said I'm a grown This is my house. I bought the pinwheels. I'll eat as many pinwheels as I want, but it's not fair. Now, who taught them that? Who taught them that it wasn't fair? I've never looked at something they had and said, hey, that's not fair. How come you get that and I don't get that? I've never gone up to Laura and said, hey, you have more clothes than me. It's not fair. Because it ain't true. Okay, that's right. Sometimes preaching is hard. The truth is hard as well. But what do you do? She likes, she likes cutoffs and running shorts. I'm off topic. My point is, I don't have to teach the kids what's fair and unfair. If you're a parent, you know it's true. They know what's fair and unfair. Let's roll this out into our racism argument. If kids are born knowing what's fair or unfair, in order for them to believe that skin color makes them better than somebody else, they have to be taught that. Are you tracking with me? Racism has to be put in them. It's either passed down or it's passed around, but it does not start there. So even if you're here today and aren't sure about church or don't trust the Bible or, or, or any of those things, racism is still wrong just from a scientific and psychological approach. But it's also illogical from a human rights perspective. Throughout much of history, people acquired rights and responsibilities through their membership in a group. Your family, your nation, your religion, your socioeconomic class, whatever it was, you got certain rights and responsibilities. Now, that did not mean you thought everybody was of equal worth or value or dignity. The belief that everyone, by virtue of his or her humanity is entitled to certain human rights, is fairly new. It's a newer concept. It took the catalyst of World War II to propel human rights onto the global conscience. It was 1948 before we had a document that unanimously accepted within the governments of the world that said uh, everybody, when they're born as a human being, should have certain rights. It's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, if you're interested. There you go. But the roots of the document signed in 1948 lie in earlier traditions and documents. Many cultures, in fact, all societies, whether they're oral or written, 
or in tradition, they all had systems of justice and ways of dealing with the welfare of their members. I wrote down a few of them. The Hindu Vedas, the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi, the Bible, the Quran, the Analects of Confucius. All of these address human rights and responsibilities and duties that you have as a human being. So again, just from a civic standpoint, you can't argue racism. There's no place for it in any culture. Yet here's the problem. Racism is still happening. I'm not even going to talk about America right now. I'm just saying racism across the globe is still happening. Go Google the word genocide and see the atrocities that have happened in the last 30 and 40 years. In my history undergrad, we, we, I had a class called the History of Genocide, and I'm telling you, it's appalling. Things like Rwanda, Darfur, North, North and South Korea is despicable what's happening within the world. So why is it happening? If science, civics, genetics, psychology, they all argue this absurdity of racism, then why are people still racist? The only thing that I can come up with is sin. We're prideful people. We want power. We want to repress other people to make a name for ourselves. So let me show you a couple things from a biblical perspective that that talk about racism. I'll, I'll show you a couple passages before we get to Matthew seven. Second uh, Chronicles nineteen seven says, "Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes." Partiality means treating certain people better than other people. Kind of like racism. And God says, be careful not to do that. In fact, it says, you should be afraid of God if you are doing that. That's a dangerous place to be. Watch this, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, God's never looked at racism as a skin issue. It's always been a sin issue. It's about what's happening in your heart. Now, here's what I feel like I know about our church. I don't feel like any of you are necessarily racist, strictly speaking. I'm not sure how you could be and still come to church here for the simple fact that we have uh, a diverse leadership. We have a diverse group of people sitting in the audience. We're racially diverse, ethnically diverse. I mean, I don't feel like you could come here and say that we're better off than any other group of people. So I don't think I need to compel you to repent of racism, although you might. You might have that in your heart, and I just haven't seen it play out yet. So, so maybe that's your story. But, but I think more Uh, in regards to this idea of racism, we need to ask, how do we respond to racism? So let me answer your question. Is racism a sin? Absolutely yes. It's evil, wicked, and wrong. And God says, like I pointed out, you should be afraid of me if there's racism in your heart. However, we need to look at what do we do if racism is a sin? How do we respond to it? So with the rest of our time together, I want us to chat about what we need to do in response to racism, since clearly it's not an issue that's gone away. Matthew chapter 7, 
We're going to pick it up in verse 12. Probably a very popular verse. You might have it on a coffee cup. It says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Law and the prophets is Jesus' way of saying the entire Old Testament hinges on this statement. Do to others what you would have them do to you. It's called the what? Golden rule. Some of you all were taught that in school. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Now here's the problem with that statement. Jesus didn't say refrain from doing bad things to other people because you don't want bad things done to you. He doesn't say don't do to others what you don't want have done to you. He said proactively do to others what you want to be done to you. In other words, what are you doing? Not what are you not doing. That doesn't define your love for people. It's what you do, not what you don't do. I guess, let me say it this way. With regards to loving people, which we're commanded to do, love your neighbor as yourself, until you do that, you don't actually have that. You you following me? You don't have love if you're not willing to give love. Until you love somebody, you, you don't actually have love in your heart. So I'll give you a practical example of this. As many of you know, I was a history major in college. One of the areas of study that was very intriguing to me and fascinating was the civil rights movement. Laura and I have been to Birmingham for a couple uh, different conferences and have had the opportunity to go and and see some of these stories. Uh, Birmingham was actually called Bombingham in the 60s because of the violence and and stuff that was happening within uh, uh, the whites and and the group of Africans, Americans trying to protest this. So we've seen the museum, we've seen the church that was bombed. But as I began to see this uh, and study this idea of civil rights and the movement, there was a, a singular letter that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in April of 1963 that just kind of wrecked my worldview, specifically when I went into full-time ministry. It was just, it was very almost devastating. It's a well-known letter. If you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, uh, you've seen me address the letter and reference it before, but you can Google it. You can find it. It's called The Letter from the Birmingham Jail. I want to read you a portion of the letter, but just to set the framework of this letter, when it was written, Martin Luther King Jr. had come to Birmingham. He had staged a series of sit-ins and marches and sanctions against the economy of Birmingham for the oppression of African Americans in the area, and he was put into prison because of what he was doing. The local white clergymen had accused King of lacking patience and that he should trust them to push the ball of civil rights forward. At the beginning of the letter, he says, I don't normally address or respond to critics because if if all I did was respond to critics, that would be the only thing that I did is respond to critics. But he said, in this case, since these are my brothers in Christ, he's going to respond to them. So this is how he writes the letter. He writes, Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, Wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at a whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse 
kick and even kill your black brothers and sisters. When you have seen the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you speak to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children. Are you feeling this in your soul? And see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John. And your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Let me tell you why this has kind of plagued me as a pastor. First of all, this is not the distant past. This is not 150 years ago during the Civil War. This is 1963. A number of you were alive in 1963. Then combine that with the fact that a couple years ago we have a hate-filled white man walk into a church and assassinate its black parishioners. And then you have the ridiculousness of what's happening in Charlottesville where people are actually advocating bigotry and prejudice. So I just want to speak very frankly and honestly. My wife and my three children are a delight to me. I love each one of them. And it's It's clearly not a stretch for me to say if you would turn hoses and a dog loose on one of them, I would physically murder you. You understanding what I'm saying? I would punch you. I would choke you. I would try to rip off your face. I would physically try and destroy you. You might be a big old boy. I'll take my chances, right? I know the soft spots. There's no fighting fair. I don't care how bad you are in that scenario. I'm coming for your manhood. When you fall to the ground, I'm taking the boots to you. You know what I'm saying? Anybody else with me on this? Got awful quiet there for a second. But here's my thought. Here's what I don't get, and quite frankly still don't get. How did these men who marched with King not do that? I mean, week in, week out, month in, month out, century in, century out, with nothing on the horizon as far as change goes, how did they stay peaceful? 
Think about this. In the Supreme Court of the United States in America, it says in 1954, this stops. Segregation is over within schools. Yet a decade later, nothing has changed. Like, how do they walk under this oppression without going violent? Now, certainly things get goofy a little after King, and, and violence does happen. But, but if you watch King and study Martin Luther King Jr., things never go violent with him. So I've always wondered, how did he do it? How did the people with him do it? Now, I know the big answer. The big answer, it was God. He helped them. Of course, I, yes, we're in church. The answer is always God. I get that. But I want to know, how did they do it? Because there had to be some sort of special dispensation of grace because I'm telling you what I said earlier is the truth. I know I'd go to jail. I know I'd make the news. I know I'm going to lose my job. The elders here aren't going to be like, well, he just stomped a man to death on the street corner. It's fine. Let him preach, right? I mean, that's not going to, they're not going to say that. But, but it's, it, I understand it's going to cost me. My other kids, or all my kids, would be visiting daddy through glass, and, and I'm being, doing prison ministry from the inside, and I'm telling you, I would still murder you. So how do they do it? Furthermore, as a fellow pastor, how can you sit there and say, well, just wait? Guys, we've got them right where we want them. We're going to push this ball forward. Just hold on. Like, where was the angst in the church when all this was happening? And I think I know. I think they were saying, as maybe some of you have said, well, we aren't doing any of those things. We aren't racist. If they would come to my house, we would serve them and, and we would help them. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? doesn't say don't do, says do unto others as you would have them to, to you. Courageously, boldly, unapologetically, you actually have to do something. I'm going to tell you exactly what you can do, but just to drive this point home, 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning if you are a follower of Jesus, you are supposed to be a reconciler. You are supposed to be a bridge builder. You're supposed to create uh, chasms. You're not supposed to create chasms. You're supposed to unite chasms that have been created by division which I'd say right now in our country, we're pretty divided. This isn't just about racism. You're supposed to reconcile all relationships. You're supposed to be a bridge builder. According to the Bible, God's plan for unity is the capital C church. You're supposed to be doing something. And by saying, well, I'm not doing any of these hateful, wrong, wicked, evil things, therefore I'm okay, is wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. Now, I want to give you some of those practical things uh, before we get out of here. Some things that you can do, but you're in Matthew 7. Take a, take a look at just one page over Matthew chapter 6. Disciples come to Jesus and, and say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. We've, we've seen you praying. We've tried praying. The way you're doing it is different than the way we're doing it. Teach us to pray. And in verse 9 of chapter 6, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Well, that, that got me thinking, well, well, what's it like in heaven? If we're praying for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, what's it look like in heaven? Well, Revelation chapter 7 actually tells us uh, about heaven. A guy named John got a sneak peek of heaven. Here's what he says. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all people and all languages standing before the throne of God saying, clothed in white, palm branches waving, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what heaven looks like. Ethnically diverse. All equally pardoned under the grace of God. Jesus says when you're praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, in heaven there's racial reconciliation. Everybody is equal because we're we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Come on, somebody. This is, this is what heaven looks like. This is what the world is supposed to look like. All equal. So what can we do? What can we do? Well, obviously from this passage, we can pray. We can pray that God would move and stir in people's hearts. We can pray for our country. We can pray for our leadership. We can pray, but we also see in Matthew chapter 7 that you're supposed to do something so prayer's not the only thing. It's kind of a cop-out for, for a lot of Christians. People tell them stuff, oh, I'll pray for you. Well, most often than not, that's, you just say that. You don't actually pray for them. Uh, but we need to do something besides prayer. Don't, don't get me wrong. We value prayer here. Okay, 21 days of prayer and fasting happens in January every year. So we're, so we're about prayer. We believe God can do something if you'll pray to Him, but, but we also feel like uh, you can do some other things. Uh, y'all heard the old saying uh, about war, pray, and, but keep your powder dry? I think is that how it goes? That, okay, never mind. Uh, bad example, I guess. Pray. Number two, you can befriend people of another race. Befriend people of another race, which I understand that can be difficult. Because we're drawn toward those who are like us and to embrace diversity is to lean in to uncomfortable situations. If everyone around us is like us, then we almost never risk being misunderstood. And when we're misunderstood, that's when things get awkward. But this is true of all things, not just race. Keep in mind that Jesus hung out with such horrible people that he was called a drunk and a sinner because that's the company he kept. Who are your friends? Only white Christians? You're doing it wrong. Two of you are with me. Befriend people of other races. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it's going to take work on your part. Do unto others. Not don't do. Find a way to do to others as you would have them do to you. Last one. Speak out. When you see racist things happening, you can speak out. Dr. William Weaver said, that is what evil depends on. Good people to not say anything. This is why the ball of racism and and civil rights was never pushed forward as fast as it could have been because people weren't saying anything. Specifically, white people who knew it was wrong. Evil depends on that for you to stay silent. 
you have to speak out, join in in, in whatever grassroots movements are happening. To, and I'm not saying do anything violent because some of these uh, organizations are advocating things that the Bible never told you to do. But you need to speak out. You all see the video online uh, that Burger King put out? Anybody see this? They put some actors in a, in a Burger King and uh, they staged these folks to, to bully a kid. And, and they wanted to see who would speak out against it. And then they bullied hamburgers. Okay? So they jacked up somebody's burger while some kid was getting jacked up and they videoed the results. Everybody who got a jacked up burger came back and said something. Nobody said anything about the violence was happening right in the store. Very few people. That's not okay. Anytime you value a cheeseburger greater than you value somebody's life, something wrong is happening within your heart. And this is what our world looks like today in our culture. You can't say all human lives matter and then you're going to get all kinds of weird things happening like this. Those two things don't correlate. If you say all human lives matter, but you're not willing to speak out against it, something wrong is happening. When you get to a place in life where you can't call sin, sin, and you can't say that is wrong because that offends me, this is a result of sin. In our enlightened civilization, we're just repeating the effects of not fearing the Lord and not doing what He commands. The Bible says, be careful what you do. For there is no injustice with the Lord our God. Might I submit to you that race is a big deal to God. It's kind of his idea, right? Diversity, variety, he's kind of into that. Just take a look at the world around you. Landscapes, weather, all of these things. So when he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this sums up the entire Old Testament, that's not a suggestion. It says when you sum it all up, you want to know what the whole book is about? The 600 commands that you've written down, I can sum it up in one. Do. Do. But then man, God didn't just say that. He, he modeled it for us. He sent His Son, Jesus, to this earth to die for you. In His providence, He says, I don't want them to die in their sin. I'm going to make a way for them to be in a relationship with Me. I'm going to take their punishment. I'm going to take what they deserve. Because that is love. This is not just words for Jesus. This is what His whole life was about. And this is what your life is meant to look like. Giving of yourself to help somebody else. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it's going to be hard. There are going to be some mistakes along the way. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Love each other. Do things for one another. Why? Because God did it for you. He made a way for you to be reconciled to Himself. And He's asking you to make a way to to reconcile the people around you. You can do something, but you've got to figure it out for your life. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity we even have to come and gather in this place. 
God, I don't know, know what's happening in every person's heart, but I ask that you just move and stir and work in them and do what only you can do. Show them ways that they can be more cognizant of the world around them. To be helpful, to be nice, to, to reconcile people, to help show them what you've done for them. Would you send your son Jesus to die in our place, to forgive us of our sins. God, I just ask that you help each person as they leave this place today to be more aware of the world around them, to figure out ways to speak against injustice, to, to pray for opportunities to, to help those who are not as well off as them, to bring glory to your great name. Jesus, we pray this in your beautiful name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.